Welcome back, everybody. Another episode of You Make Me Sick, a podcast where we discuss pathogenic microorganisms, uh, talk about their history, their pathology, ideology, uh, and epidemiology, all those fun things. So uh, before I start today, I uh, just want to uh, thank all the new listeners out there. Um, I've had quite a few over the last month or so, so it's really encouraging. Uh, always feel free to please leave feedback. Uh, we're on Twitter at MakeMeSickPod, and we're also, uh, you can email me at uh, YouMakeMeSickPod at gmail.com. So today we're going to do uh, kind of wrap up our herpes series, at least for right now. Uh, I'd still like to do varicella zoster, which uh, is chicken pox uh, and also shingles for adults, which can be really painful. Uh, it's probably the most commonly known after the other ones we've already discussed. Uh, but we'll wrap up today with uh, herpes simplex 2. So this is the one that most people, when they hear herpes, probably associate it with. This is the genital herpes. So definitely the, the ugliest of all the, the herpes that you can get. Before we do that, though, uh, just a few infectious disease updates. A lot of talk right now about H1N1, or, or sorry, uh, H1N5, H5N1. Let get that straight. The avian flu that's been going around. Been in the news for you know almost over a year now, just because it kills a lot of uh, a lot of poultry. That's why egg prices are so high, chicken prices are up. But a lot of people have had concerns about it uh, crossing over into humans. So. There have only been a few cases worldwide where this has happened. There have been no reported cases in the U.S. to date. So where it is kind of concerning because it uh, it can have a higher mortality rate in humans, right now it's not really something to worry about. I just think it's been in the news and there's a lot of talk about it because of the fact uh, that the bird flu and it's affecting, like I said, egg prices, chicken prices, and killing millions and millions of birds, that uh, there's a little bit of fear that it's going to cross over and start to infect humans at the same rate. So, but uh, no, no proof of that or evidence of that right now. Uh, there's a more concerning strain, actually, that's been happening in China over the course of probably the last year or so. They've had a lot more cases. Uh, historically, it's something that has affected humans. It's also still another uh, avian flu, but it's the H5N6. And this has a mortality rate of greater than 60% in most cases. And there have been a lot more cases of this than of the H5N1. Uh, so people, if they want something to really be concerned about and keep an eye on, uh, H5N6 seems to be a little more, it's been occurring more frequently. And uh, as I said, it, it has a higher mortality rate uh, than a lot of those uh, H1 or avian flu strains anyway. So uh, Nipah virus, that's uh, our last episode. Uh, last I checked, uh, there were 11 total cases and 8 deaths, so that hasn't really become an outbreak, but that was something, as I mentioned, that uh, could be concerning if it were to spread. And then the other major outbreak uh, that's been happening is actually Marburg virus, and that's what I plan to do my next podcast on, are filoviruses. So the filoviruses, uh, there are three of them, but we'll be talking about Ebola and the Marburg virus specifically because those are the two most common and the two that cause the most amount of deaths. So uh, hemorrhagic fevers, they're pretty nasty. But that being said, uh, let's jump into the herpes. Uh, herpes simplex virus 2. Uh, as I said, this is the genital herpes. You know, this reminds me of the time I got herpes. A lot of similarities to herpes simplex virus 1, so I'm not going to regurgitate a lot of what I went through uh, last time, but I'll kind of touch on some of the, some of the differences. It's still uh, alpha herpes viridae, 
Uh, it's very similar to Simplex One. Uh, if you're still curious or didn't listen to that podcast, go back and check that one out. I go into a little more depth just about the virus in and of itself and kind of how it works. Uh, the mechanics are very similar, uh, Simplex One and Simplex Two. Uh, but Simplex 2, uh, this is the one, as I mentioned, that in more notoriety just because it is an STD. Uh, it's taboo, sensationalized, all that stuff. Uh, back when I, in the 80s, I remember growing up in the 80s, it was a big deal back in the 80s because everybody was getting it. Uh, and this is kind of pre-HIV. Once HIV started, you actually started to see downtrends in almost uh, all STDs just because of the fact that uh, people were being more safe about sex. But uh, still a pretty common STD. Uh, about 22% of adults age 12 and older in the United States uh, have been infected with herpes simplex virus 2. Then there's about 45 million adults in the United States. So uh, a lot of people still have it, still deal with it. Uh, herpes simplex 1 really kind of, uh, you know, that brought on cold sores and I kind of mentioned the other types of herpes, uh, how it could affect the skin and whatnot. But uh, where that mainly affected the oral region, uh, and can sometimes cause genital lesions. Herpes simplex 2 is more commonly considered the genital lesions, and that's where the majority of cases are herpes simplex 2. So, how do you get it? Uh, as uh, talked about in uh, herpes simplex 1, uh, exposure is usually to fluids containing any kind of viral products. This is usually for simplex 2 during sexual intercourse. Uh, if somebody has open lesions and they're actively shedding the virus, this is how it's passed. That being said, if you think you got herpes from a toilet seat or uh, somebody tells you that they're lying and you're lying to yourself, probably not the case. Not saying that it couldn't happen, but uh, it has a, a very low stability outside of the body and outside of moist surfaces. Uh, even on a very moist surface, it only lasts for about three days in the environment before it dies off. So it's a very, very low probability unless you're someone who has to sit on wet, disgusting toilet seats. And that's your own problem. Uh, you should probably look into that. So that's a, some risk-taking behavior. Uh, due to being transmitted through sexual intercourse, uh, this is probably uh, this is why we see it start to become a predominant uh, STD right around the age of puberty. So the numbers for this STD start to increase around 12 years old, and then they kind of uh, just increase from that age up through uh, adolescence into puberty. Simplex 2 is also recurrent like Simplex 1, uh, and it can also affect pregnant women. So there are those cases where it's actually passed from mother to child during childbirth. Uh, you can have that intrauterine transmission, and then you get the resultant congenital herpes simplex, simplex uh, virus 2 infection. So the virus, let's say you get it, you get infected with it. Very similar uh, to herpes simplex 1, it invades epithelial cells, so kind of uh, outside skin tissues, and then it starts to replicate at that site. Uh, initial exposure, symptoms usually take about, uh, I don't know, anywhere from 10 days to 3 weeks to really show up. On average, it's about 10, 10 days to 2 weeks, though. And after that, it will kind of go away, things will heal up, and then the virus lays dormant. So very similar to herpes simplex 1 that I talked about the kind of like a dorsal root ganglia. So you have these uh, kind of deep nerves that are attached to spinal nerves that kind of come up and they essentially are, these are the nerves that will kind of sense touch or cold. You know, they're found pretty much on the skin, these nerve receptors. Uh, same goes for herpes simplex 2. 
where simplex one you're going to find kind of around the mouth and the oral cavity that's where the majority of these were infected and that's where you'd see recurrences so if you get cold sores once they'll probably come back around the mouth again with herpes simplex two same idea but because they're genital uh it's that's the tissue where it was affected so those uh the dorsal root ganglia for those nerves around that area that's where it's going to lie dormant uh, until you have some kind of reoccurrence or you have some kind of uh, episode where it flares back up again. So much like her, you know, herpes simplex 1, herpes simplex 2 can come back. But similar to herpes simplex 1, usually the initial that primary infection is much worse than the recurring infection. So uh, recurring uh, episodes, I should say. Uh, usually not as bad as far as symptomatically. Uh, with that primary infection, uh, symptoms that you might see, you get the kind of genital ulcerations, you'll get sores or crusts. There's a, you can have some tender lymph nodes and it can also be painful to urinate as well. Uh, as I stated before, it's onset usually 10 days to two weeks, last for two to three weeks, then these symptoms go away, things start to heal up uh, and it seems like things are normal again. People can also have systemic symptoms. Uh, these were reported one study had it up to about 24 percent of people end up with systemic symptoms as well uh, these would be a fever or headache uh, general malaise just feeling kind of crappy and uh, this is usually uh, sometimes with a concurrent viral infection as well so you kind of get a double whammy with that statistically more women uh, have reported to be infected and uh, the prevalence increases uh, with number of sexual partners obviously yeah uh, you're talking about ethnically, uh, statistically, non-Hispanic African Americans have greater rates of infection than non-Hispanic whites. And about 85 to 90% of infections are actually unrecognized or just undiagnosed. Uh, so either people either have very mild symptoms, so they don't bother to get it checked out, or they don't have it, or it's underreported. Uh, but about 85 to 90% uh, of all infections they just don't recognize them as some kind of herpes infection, so it's never really uh, diagnosed that way. Here in the United States, it's one of the most common causes of genital ulcers. Uh, internationally, though, there's about 23 million new cases every year. So, uh, as, as we've stated before, you know, herpes, uh, kind of a gift that keeps on giving, right? Ha, ha, ha. So, what if you wake up one day, you know, a couple weeks after having some romantic night with some stranger you met at a bar, or who knows, or somewhere else, uh, <laughs> and you end up with uh, painful urination and some weird looking things growing on your genitalia, how do you get tested? So uh, for testing, uh, as with uh, serotype 1, herpes simplex 1, uh, the PCR test is definitely the best way to do it. Uh, what they'll do is they'll kind of take a, a swab of one of your, your lesions Usually has to be within about three days of onset though. Um, sometimes they can give false negatives if it's after that. And then they just do kind of serotyping of it. Um, there's also a test called a Zank smear, which I mentioned before. And that's kind of a low sensitivity test. Uh, and that'll kind of tell you you might have herpes, but it doesn't distinguish between serotypes. That's why the PCR testing is the best way to actually find out accurately if you have it or not. There's also, there's kind of differential diagnosis. So you might hear that term thrown around. So a differential diagnosis is essentially, it could be something else because it has the same symptoms. So some of the differential diagnoses are a 
you know, acute urinary tract infections. Uh, so you kind of want to get a urinalysis or a urine culture to make sure that this just isn't like a urinary tract infection mimicking that of a, an STD. Uh, there are other STDs that also have some of these same uh, signs and symptoms. So gonorrhea, chlamydia as well, which you can do in a urine test for that. And usually they'll do an HIV test as well, uh, just to be safe, uh, just because there's no interaction between herpes simplex virus 2 and HIV. And uh, with the HIV infection, it can, it's actually shown that herpes simplex 2 uh, may occur a little bit faster than, uh, than if it wasn't there. So what about treatment? Oh, it's awful. I have herpes. My life is over. What am I going to do? Well. Uh, there are some treatments for it. Management, uh, you know, it, it's, there are drugs that will help suppress the viral shedding. Um, primary infections with the ulcerations, you know, they usually last, like I said, up to about three weeks sometimes, depending, uh, regardless of what treatment you get. So a lot of times after that primary infection, uh, any kind of medication you might take is just suppress uh, any further uh, flare-ups of the herpes. Uh, the secondary or the non-primary, uh, so that's that infection after you have that pre-existing immunity after you get it the first time. Uh, there are antiviral agents that you can take. Uh, the mainstay, the, the kind of gold standard right now is acyclovir. Uh, acyclovir has kind of antiviral activity against all the herpes viruses. Uh, it's FDA approved. It's actually used quite frequently. Uh, can help suppress the herpes <laughs> excuse me herpes simplex viruses, and it can uh, help suppress uh, varicella zoster. So if you have somebody who's as a child gets chickenpox, they may prescribe that. More so with adults. With adults who get uh, varicella zoster, they end up uh, they can end up with shingles, which is extremely painful. It can be really uh, say dangerous, but uh, really debilitating and just nasty. Uh, there are other treatments. There's Pensiclovir, uh, which is more of like a topical therapy, and there is gainsiclovir, uh, which has suppression against cytomegalovirus, which is another herpes virus, which I haven't really discussed much. Discussed much, but uh, acyclovir is probably the most commonly prescribed and what you would most commonly get uh, if you were going to have uh, antiviral for that. With acyclovir, few things to watch out. Um, we will give it at work sometimes with some of our patients when they come in, if, especially if they have uh, a really bad infection, we don't know what it is, just to cover all our bases. At the same time, in really high doses, it can cause uh, kidney impairment, renal impairment. It, uh, it's, uh, nephrologist once told me the acyclovir, I think it crystallizes in the kidneys. So it can cause a lot of damage at really high doses. So when we're giving that IV, we really have to keep an eye on our patient's renal values. Somebody who takes it that you know, probably wouldn't be the same dose if you were getting prescribed for it uh, for herpes, so I wouldn't worry too much about that. Uh, but that's just one of the major side effects that we watch out for is kidney toxicity. Uh, immunocompromised patients and immunocompetent patients who take acyclovir, uh, sometimes it actually they can build up a resistance uh, to that, so they have to have higher and higher doses. Uh, but normal people with normal immune systems, it usually works pretty good. Uh, there's also a medication it looks like that they're kind of working on called Valomacyclovir. Um, don't have a lot of information about that one, but uh, something that it's, they're always coming up with new fun ways to treat these uh, viruses. So uh, 
there have also been uh, alternative treatments that people have done. So for anybody who's into holistic medication, I'm, I'm not poo-pooing holistic medication. Uh, I just think you should always uh, maybe use that as a, you know, a secondary option or additional an adjunct option to uh, modern medicine, uh, scientifically proven modern medicine that seems to work quite well. But uh, a, there has been demonstrated susceptibility to the herpes simplex virus uh, to many essential oils. So this is uh, both direct virucidal activity that these oils have, as well as inhibiting kind of intracellular replication of that. Uh, topical peppermint oil is one that was studied that has a pretty good virucidal component. Uh, but these aren't, like I said, these aren't really the standard for treating, at least not uh, you know, in, in Western medicine right now. Uh, but if you go the holistic route, you do have options there too. So uh, as far as uh, other oils, I guess uh, Australian tea oil and eucalyptus oil are two others that have been used that have had some success as well. What about vaccinations? So, uh, you know, in the last few years, we've come a long way with how we reproduce, or not reproduce, but I guess how we create vaccines. Uh, and just the work that has been put in towards uh, coming up with new vaccines. So there are study, there are vaccines being studied right now. Uh, there are no vaccine at the moment that's available, uh, but there are some, I want to say that, see, I was able to find a couple. There's one that uh, are in some, the, they've already started uh, their trials for them. I don't know what phases they're in right now. But I do know that Moderna has one and uh, BioNTech or BioNTech, whatever you want to say. Um, they also have a uh, herpes virus that vaccine that they're working on as well. So perhaps in the future, uh, those will come out, which would be great. Uh, you know, anytime you can, you can stop the spread, it's uh, always a good thing. What about a prognosis for this? You're going to have it for the rest of your life. You are until they come up with a cure. But right now there is no cure. Uh, so, uh, you, you gotta live with it. So early identification of symptoms and, uh, you know, and pharmacological therapies right now, the acyclovir, like I said, is a, you know, pretty much the standard for it. Uh, those can kind of lead to some of the suppression of viral replication and prevent those, uh, flare-ups that you might have. Uh, if you don't want to get herpes, abstinence is great. You can just not have any kind of sexual contact with anybody. Or you could play it safe, um, you know, if you have a partner you're serious with or want to get serious and you both want to get tested, do that. Using protection is always really smart. So I, uh, you know, I, I encourage that. Uh, as far as uh, mortality for this, so as I mentioned in herpes simplex one, there's that uh, herpes encephalopathy. Um, it can cause a lot of problems, but herpes simplex 2 doesn't quite have the same mortality. I couldn't at least find data to support, uh, you know, that high mortality rate or that it causes uh, the same types of issues simplex 1 does, or if it does, that they group them together. So it, really not a lot of, not a high mortality rate for herpes simplex 2. Um, this is just more of the, uh, you know, uh, painful lesions on your genitalia. So... But uh, nothing, had, and because of that, I'm not going to do a death count today. Um, typically, the death count at the end of the show would talk about, uh, you know, since the beginning of time, how many deaths from herpes simplex 2. I just couldn't find enough data to support any kind of, uh, you know, statistical 
number, just anything to give me any kind of information to do a death count. So you can look back at the last episode on Herpes Simplex 1, and that one was big because I, you know, I, I took the deaths per year of the herpes encephalitis, and then just knowing that, you know, research that thinks that herpes has been around for, you know, up to 140 million years and started in primates and spread over, so we went back 10,000 years, it was a huge number. But uh, I suppose you could group simplex 2 in with simplex 1 because it can cause the same types of problems. I just couldn't find simplex 2 as being the primary agent for that encephalopathy. Uh, what about complications? Uh, people who are immunocompromised, as I mentioned, it can become uh, more of a problem if you have HIV uh, or other, you know, if you have cancers or are on immunosuppressing drugs, uh, might have a higher susceptibility to it. Um, the untreated herpes simplex 2, um, you know, it can cause a meningitis. Uh, any part of the nervous system can be infected by the virus or affected by the virus. Uh, there's a aseptic meningitis occurs in about 36% of women and 13% of men and can lead to hospitalization of people, uh, but it's not, uh, not super, super common. And then you can also have, uh, if you get it oddly enough in your eyes, if it spreads to your eye, you can get an acute retinal necrosis. So it can happen in one or both eyes. Um, and you'll kind of see that along with your, uh, your meningoencephalitis that you'll get. So... Uh, but once again, not overly common. Uh, as far as patient education, you know, always, like I mentioned before, um, use of condoms, knowing your sexual partners, just being careful overall. So a little epidemiology. So we can talk, because it is pretty prevalent, uh, it is still a major uh, sexually transmitted disease or sexually transmitted infection, STI or STD, depending on who you talk to. Uh, go back. So... I was looking for more recent data, but uh, according to the WHO, like their 2016 data tables, and same with like the CDC, are pretty much the most up-to-date that they had with large numbers, or large chunks of numbers, or large chunks of data, I should say. Uh, so according to 2016 um, data, the WHO stated that uh, herpes simplex 2 affects about 491 million people between the ages of 15 and 49. So that's about 13% of the world's population of that age. Uh, worldwide, it affects women uh, almost twice as often as men, uh, which I kind of touched on that before. Uh, prevalence increases with age, which we talked about too. Uh, highest number of new infections are in adolescence, which makes sense, uh, you're entering, uh, entering into puberty, uh, raging hormones and all that fun stuff. Uh, here in the United States, uh, same thing that uh, herpes simplex 2, it's more common in women than men. Uh, here in the U.S., you get about 15.9% uh, women versus 8.2% men. And that's, again, like a 14 to 49-year-olds. Uh, most infected people aren't aware of their infections, so I mentioned that before earlier. Uh, here in the United States, there's about 87.4%. Uh, of that uh, 14 to 49 year olds that are infected with uh, herpes simplex 2 have never actually received a clinical diagnosis. So I don't know how they get these numbers. Um, I'm assuming they talk to people who have, because if you've never been, if you've never had a clinical diagnosis for it, how do you know you have it? So how do you get that? This is per the CDC and the WHO. So I'm not sure if this is an estimation based on people who are positive and the number of partners they've had. I, I have no idea how they get this. Um, what is good news, though, 
is that uh, here in the U.S., uh, there have been decreases, especially over the, the last few decades. So, uh, you know, if we go all the way back, uh, the National Institutes for Health, uh, they had a study that came out, and granted this study is almost 30 years old, it was from 1997, but it was studying uh, the late 70s all the way through the 90s and looking at herpes simplex uh, virus 2 infections. And there was a huge increase uh, from the 1970s up until the 1990s, about 30%. Uh, and that uh, at that point in time, about one in five people, twelve years old or twelve years of age or older, had herpes. Uh, so, and that from 1988 to 1994, uh, you actually start to see a drop. Uh, and like I said, after in the 1980s, like it kind of peaked around then, and then you started to see HIV become more prevalent. People became safer. So you have that study from the 70s up until like, uh, you know. It went. This study went all the way through the 90s, but up until about 1988, you started to see this peak, and you started to see a drop. And then from 1988 to 1994, uh, it dropped from 30% down to 21.9%, so almost a you know 33% drop there. Uh, and then even beyond that, if you look uh, from 1990 back in 1999 to 2000, and then 2000 all the way up to 2016. It was an even bigger drop, so you get to see a drop of a drop to, I think the last. Let's see, I have it on here. So there's about almost a 50% reduction in the cases between the late 90s until 2016, which is the last data that came out. Um, the last. Uh, let's see if I have the, the numbers in here. Thought I had it in here, but maybe not. Interesting. Um, anyway, it was about a 50% drop. Uh, so, and this is probably this, uh, sexual education being better, uh, being safer about sex, um, better availability for prophylaxis as well, antiviral treatment, uh, all these different things. There's a more conscious approach probably to sexual activity as well, uh, help to kind of reduce that grow, uh, growth in herpes. So it was, uh, oh, here it is. Okay. So uh, in 2015 to 2016, it was down to 12.1%. So if you look back, you know, from 21.9% uh, back in 1994, you know, all the way down to 12.1. So pretty good uh, as far as uh, helping to prevent herpes. So um, pretty much, you know, all I got to say about the herpes simplex too, like I said, it's the more well-known of all of the herpes viruses. Uh, definitely kind of carries a little bit of a stigma. Uh, people obviously don't like to talk about it. It's funny because of all my episodes I've put out, my herpes episodes have had the fewest downloads, which is remarkable because syphilis has had the most. So I don't know. I, herpes itself just has a, I don't know, it's unpalatable name. Um, but it is what it is. So uh, I wanted to, you know, at least get out a few of these herpes episodes before I move on to something else that's probably a little more interesting. And like I said, we'll do filoviruses next. So we'll do Marburg and Ebola, which uh, should be pretty interesting. Both nasty viruses, um, biosafety level four viruses. I'll talk a little bit more about biosafety level labs too, just because it's uh, in the United States, there's only 13 of them. Uh, there's actually one right here in Boston, really close to where I work. So uh, it's, it's pretty interesting. They're actually allowed to keep these viruses on hand, and they're the ones who help to develop uh, vaccines, treatments, and, and all kinds of other things. So 
more transparent uh, than some of the other. Than, than I think people think that this is really covert government shady stuff, especially after the whole whole deal with uh, with COVID nineteen and the back and forth of whether or not this was naturally occurring or started in a lab, and how there have been connections to gain of function research, all of that. So um, what's nice to know is that uh, biosafety labs, they are pretty transparent. Uh, the one here in Boston, uh, you can actually, I think you can arrange for either a tour or to talk to somebody. And there's actually a committee of people who live in the neighborhood uh, and they meet, I wanna say it's once a month or so, just to, if they have questions or concerns. So it, they seem to be relatively transparent. Uh, it's the uh, NI, NEIDL, the NEEDL, the National Emerging Infectious Disease Laboratories. Uh, I actually follow them on Twitter. Uh, it's at NEIDL if anybody's interested. That's the one here in Boston. Uh, they're out of the Boston University. So, and they actually have some of their staff, I know at least one of their staff members, they specialize in uh, Ebola and hemorrhagic uh, viruses. So, pretty cool stuff. Um, I also wanted to give a shout out. Uh, I. I have five followers now on Twitter. Oh, can you believe it? Um, so I just want to give a shout out to those who are following me. It's funny because two of them are, they have nothing to do with infectious diseases. Uh, one is Covered in Punk. Uh, Covered in Punk is actually an album where they do punk covers of Dr. Demento. If anybody likes Dr. Demento, uh, they do punk covers of Dr. Demento songs. And for whatever reason, they reached out and followed me. Um, and then Funhouse Radio. Uh, which is also just kind of another, like, they, they tweet out weird uh, kind of stories and gifts and things like that. They follow me as well. I think it was because uh, I have an affinity for Weird Al Yankovic, so, and I've, I've followed him on Twitter. Twitter's strange. For those of you, if anybody who follows me on Twitter, obviously there'd only be three of you who would be listening to this right now, I think, but uh, thank you. Christy Meyer, MFT, uh, thank you for following. And then uh, Global Pandemic Intel. So anybody else who uh, has any interest in uh, just infectious disease or any stories that might be happening around the world uh, that might not be covered just in traditional news. Global Pandemic Intel, it's a, they're, they're at virus tracking. That is their, their Twitter, Twitter call letters, at virus tracking. And these guys have come up with stories that I haven't even seen or heard of uh, and kind of clue me in on some other things that might be going on worldwide. So uh, they're, they're a good follow if you're on Twitter. Um, so, and then as always, Amy Tibbetts Carlo, my first follower ever, thank you. Uh, anybody who's interested and wants to leave feedback, uh, you can follow me at MakeMeSickPod on Twitter. Uh, I will be posting... Uh, once I get my Ebola and Marburg stuff up, just more information, more links to that. Uh, but for anybody who is interested uh, in leaving feedback, please feel free to do that. Uh, I, I would appreciate it. Uh, always try to, it sucks because I ask people that I know who listen for feedback, but because I know them, they're probably not going to be honest. Or if they're, it, maybe they're being honest. I don't know. Maybe they're just being nice. But uh, any ways I can improve. Uh, still hoping to get, I need guests at some point, uh, just to jazz things up a little bit. I sometimes think conversationally it's easier to listen to than just me kind of ramble on about stuff. Anyway, uh, thank you all for listening. Uh, I will be back. Hopefully I'll record again this week and do filoviruses this week and kind of get that out there. 
just because that Marburg outbreak uh, is happening right now uh, is it's you know it's in the news and it's fresh so anyway thanks again for listening uh, and remember to always wash your hands You know, this reminds me of the time I got herpes. Remember what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Ah! <laughs> Except for herpes. That shit will come back with you. <laughs>